Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this last event in this year's series of Humanitas um, Lecturers Beyond Apologetic um, Approaching Religious Traditions Through Modern Disciplines. Whereas the last couple of days, you've had Professor Filali Ansari, who sits to my right, lecturing. Today, is, we are going to have a panel, um, and I'll begin in a second by introducing all the panelists. Before I do this, however, I'll just say quickly who I am. My name is Johannes Achuber, and I'm a member of the Faculty of Theology and Religion. Um, my job today is merely to chair this panel, so to keep an eye on the time and make sure everybody has their share um, of the allotted time. As I said, um, very briefly a word about the participants in this panel. I'm assuming that most of you have been here to one or more of the previous lectures, so you already know Professor Abdufilali Ansari, who's sitting directly to my right. He was the founding director of the Aga Khan University Institute for the Study of Muslim Civilizations, and generally speaking, is one of the most respected um, Muslim intellectuals who's especially been active in the transmission um, of understanding between the Islamic world and the West, especially the Francophone um, world. To my left directly is Professor Sarah Strumsam, who is an expert in medieval Islam. Since 2003, she's been the Alice and Jack Ormut Professor of Arabic Studies at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And she's just retired from the, I'm sure, very um, um, honorable, but also very onerous job of rector of the Hebrew um, University. On the far right from me is Oxford's own Graham Ward, who is Regis Professor of Divinity at Christchurch. And as perhaps some of you may know, this, uh, the particular character of this chair in the Faculty of Theology and Religion is that it is connected with a canonry at Christchurch. So Graham is also um, a canon in the cathedral. And on the left, far left, um, Dr. Tim West, who is currently the Sheikh Zayed Lecturer of Islamic Studies in the Faculty of Divinity at Cambridge University and Director of Studies in Theology at Wolfson College there. So these are the four panelists. We'll begin now by um, hearing from Professor Filali Ansari a few ideas to introduce our discussion today. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I would like to begin by thanking again Guy for the invitation to contribute to this series and for the opportunity I had to, uh, I would say, experiment with a number of ideas 
about uh, the claims that are made around us nowadays about Islam. Uh, I would like, uh, in the, well, I think I have something like 20 minutes. Uh, mm -hmm. So I would like to begin by offering a very brief summary of what I attempted to, to, to show, if I can say, during the last days before trying to illustrate my uh, proposal with uh, an example taken from the long history of Muslims. Uh, for me, uh, apologetics is the endeavor to show to oneself and to the others that one's own faith is sound, as if faith could be reduced to a system of doctrines that can be shown to be uh, sound or to be strong or to be rational, and that can be shown also to be maybe better than the claims of other religions. And it seems to me that this kind of discourse is quite widespread in many Muslim contexts. That it may be the case that it is not only widespread in those contexts, but in others. And it seems to me that uh, uh, this, this kind of discourse does a lot of harm to understanding the uh, religious heritage of the societies in question, but also to understanding how things are evolving in, in those contexts, particularly those which can be labeled as belonging to Muslim societies or being Muslim societies. So uh, uh, one of the greatest shortcomings in this kind of claim that I, uh, that I have tried to, uh, to, to discuss during the last days is the fact that they uh, turn their back to, to history to, and to historical change. kind of discourse that uh, tends to say that Islam is this, or Islam with capital I is that, in general ignores or dismisses anything about historical change, and I see this as a serious challenge. When change is, uh, is seen as something that is negative from the normative point of view, uh, it is considered as aggressions, as uh, uh, betrayal, as uh, corruption of the original, and so on. And the idea is that everything should be done in order to uh, uh, discard those forms that appeared in history, which are thought to be not in line with the norm, and uh, to go back to the pure uh, core of the, the belief. And when change is seen as positive, this is also for me a real challenge, <clears throat> when change is seen as a positive, it is considered as to be, uh, the, in a way, the unfolding of something that was already there in the original uh, faith, uh, versions of the faith. So this, to me, is a great uh, challenge for, for those societies and challenge for us in our attempt to understand what is happening in those societies. And uh, in order to illustrate this, I have chosen an example from the, 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 the long history of Muslims, which in my opinion may show us that many uh, approaches 
to uh, the, the, the realities of, the, of Muslim societies nowadays uh, are really uh, challenging to our intelligence. I have taken, I would like to take in the minutes that remain, to take the, 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 the notion of legitimacy, uh, legitimacy in, in Muslim contexts. I would say that now maybe the prevailing idea around us is that Muslims face a kind of dilemma. They have to choose either to go back to the forms that, or to the uh, political arrangements that uh, prevailed in their contexts in their past. They have to go back, in other words, to their heritage. Or they would have to discard the heritage, heritage totally and go for modern secular forms and so on. This is, the, the, this is, I think, the idea that prevails behind the scene or under or implicitly in many discourses around us nowadays. It seems to me that if we take a notion such as that of legitimacy, we can look closely to, to the history of Muslims and we can identify at least four ideas of legitimacy that have emerged and prevailed in the history of Muslims and that have shaped the attitudes and expectations. I would begin maybe by the fourth one. I wish we had time to discuss this in detail, but this will be in a, uh, in a kind of telegraphic style. The first moment, if I can say, or the first idea of legitimacy is that of the, if I, it links it, to, the, to the, 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 the kind of community that was created immediately after the, the, the death of the prophet, in which a number of, I would call them virtuous successors, it is, they are called Khulafa Rashidun, and uh, it is translated usually by the well-guided caliphs. Uh, these uh, companions of the prophet have attempted to keep the momentum that the prophet had created, and to keep the kind of moral or religious community that he has created. And it is when this system, this early system, had collapsed that Muslims felt a great, had a great sense of loss, that they felt that they lost a kind of legitimate order that they had succeeded. This is common to, to the Sunnah and the, to, to the Shia. The idea that when dynasties seized power, in the first one, if I can say, could uh, seize the power, Muawiyah, the first founder of the, or, the, or rather the founder of the first dynasty in the early history of Muslims, when he succeeded in beating uh, the latest of the uh, well-guided caliphs and imposing a kind of monarchic system, this has been a great trauma in the minds of Muslims and has been felt and it is in that this moment that they felt they, they, that they lost a legitimate system that was in place just before. So this is a first idea of legitimacy, and it has had a great influence, and it is still, in a way, in the back of the minds of many Muslims, that regime was an ideal regime, was the one that maybe continued in the best ways, what the Prophet had began, and so on. It seems to me that uh, we can see little, some, some time after, something else emerge. We can see in uh, Muslim context, uh, once uh, 
Muslims became convinced that despotism or uh, hereditary dynasties were there to last, were not there, could not be gotten rid of, that another idea of legitimacy or near legitimacy emerged. There were at that time a number of individuals who took the initiative of writing down the rules and the regulations by which uh, Muslims could live a, a good life under the, the rule of despots. And this came to be known as the uh, Sharia system, the system of Sharia. It was designed to enable societies of Muslims to live a Muslim life, but under regimes that were de facto uh, de despotic regimes and that could not be gotten rid, rid of. There was a time where, if I can say, uh, where, where it was said by many Muslim fuqaha theologians, I'll say it quickly in Arabic, man whoever prevails should be obeyed. Whoever prevails, any de facto ruler should be obeyed, provided implicitly that he obeys the law. So this second idea of legitimacy is a kind of rule of law, but where the law is given by God, is sacred, and is above the rulers, above society, above history, is something, this, this is from the, the, the period which has created this idea of Sharia as being the foundation of, the, of Islam, of the Islamic life. This has been the case for centuries, this second moment, and it has come to be considered as the Islamic system. We have for recently, for example, two, two books that uh, are, have been very influential around us, one by Bernard Lewis, The Political Language of Islam, where he describes the, the world, the conceptual world where Muslims live, and he has in mind only that moment where the Sharia was thought to be the framework within which society could live Muslim life under uh, despots who could seize power just by military might. Another book uh, by Noah Feldman recently so, well, uh, tried to, to stress that for Muslims, uh, the new ideals, the new the values of democracy, human rights, and so on, don't have any real meaning because they have their own way, their own concepts, their own world, intellectual world where, where they live. And that world is based on the model of, of uh, power where the, 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 the ruler is under the, the control of the theologians who are the ones who know, who study Sharia and who know how to apply it and how to. So in a way, there was a kind of system of checks and balances, the despot could have his way, but could not have all his way, in a way. He could not have everything, he could not, uh, this, uh, the law was not made by political powers, it was made by jurists and administered by jurists, and the, the, the despot, whoever was in place, had to put his sword to the service of the law. This is presented as the, uh, the Islamic, uh, system par, by, per excellence, I am saying that it is one idea, the second, historically speaking, that came to prevail about what is legitimate. It seems to me that since then, 
two other ideas emerged and gained acceptance. In the 19th century, many Muslim intellectuals came to be exposed to Western ideas and came also to know European societies. We have works by a number, quite a substantial number of travelers, of uh, Muslim intellectuals who traveled uh, to Europe, who stayed for some time in Europe. One of them, the example that comes first to mind is Rifa'a Tartawi, an Egyptian who was in Paris more or less at the same time when Alexis de Tocqueville was in the America, in the, in, in the US. And when uh, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote his book to, to, uh, describing to his fellow Frenchmen and to Europeans the democratic process that was emerging in America that they had not known yet, they had not been democratic yet. Well, Rifa'a Tahtawi wrote a book, it has been translated under the, the title The Gold of Paris, where he explained to his fellow Egyptians and Muslims that there was something uh, quite remarkable going on in Europe, societies that knew how to order themselves and knew how to, if I can say, find ways to implement norms in the social order. So the word that came to prevail at that time and that came to symbolize the idea of legitimacy, the third idea, is constitutionalism. <laughs> so this we find in many writings of the, the, the period. It, and it's the influence of the idea is such that in Iran, there was what is called, early in the 20th century, the Constitutional Revolution. And there was in Iran as well, early in the 20th century, uh, an Ayatollah, a cleric, who wrote a, uh, an essay entitled Tanbih al-Ummah, which is, could be translated as a wake-up call to the Ummah, to the community of, Muslim, of Muslims, telling them that it is time that they realize that there is a way to go back to legitimacy as one could understand it from early Muslim sources. And that for him at that time, if I can say constitutionalism, could enable Muslims to restore the kind of regime that they, they had hoped for since generations. This is the th what I would call the third idea. And the fourth, I see it emerging in what the, the slogans that have been raised during what is called now the Arab Spring. What I have seen, well, I'm saying things very quickly and maybe not very clearly, but uh, for me, it, it is remarkable that in the slogans that uh, were, uh, were presented or that emerged in, uh, for example, in Tahrir Square in, in Cairo, in Tunis, in Rabat and in other places, there were new concepts, which were not exact copies of Western concepts. It, we didn't have, for example, the notion of rule of law. And if you go to the French-speaking world, for example, you would find that there is no such notion and that a concept like a rule of law has, has not taken any roots. What they have in France and in Germany is a concept of uh, what they call it, état de droit, uh, a state 
bound by the law. Well, what happened in the Arab Spring, we heard an expression such as Dawlat al-Haq wal-Qanun, which can be translated as a state which is respectful of right and bound by the law. So it is a variation, it is a creation, which, and we have, for example, another concept, Dawlat al-Mu'assasat, the state which is made by ins of institutions, not a state which belongs to a family or to an individual or whatever. And now it's a whole, I would say, if Bernard Lewis could write a book about the political language of Islam with capital I, Muslim societies have developed new languages and new concepts in order to think the po politics. And at the same time, what we see is that across the board, in all political movements in the Muslim world, the popular sovereignty has, is implicitly accepted as the parameter for legitimacy. The popular vote, even the most conservative, even the Islamists, if I can say, are now saying that, well, uh, it's the popular vote that counts. So this seems to me to show one thing, that in Muslim context, we have, and like uh, if we could have the, the, the approach of a, geo a geologist, we have a number of layers. There are still individuals and groups and uh, movements and so on which dream of going back to the very early caliphate. They are a small minority. This first idea of legitimacy is still around, in a way. The second idea is more than being still around. It is, uh, it is the, uh, vindicated by many around us in the Muslim world, and many in the West have come to consider it as the Islamic system by excellence. The third one, constitutionalism, is so omnipresent in all discourses and practices and attitudes that it, it is now part of the, if I can say, the imaginary that prevails in Muslim contexts. And the fourth one is making its, 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 its way and has been, if I, has been emerging and showing its strength. And now I think we are in a kind of, we are witnessing a competition between these ideals of, of legitimacy in Muslim contexts. And we need to understand this in that way that would be much more helpful. We would reflect a better image if we were mirrors of what is happening. We would reflect to the interested societies a better image of what is happening, of how they have been living. And we would also, and this is a major point for me, be more respectful of history, of historical change. We wouldn't be able to say that Islam is this, it's Sharia and so on. I wanted, for example, yesterday in the lecture, and I would conclude by this, to show that, for example, the idea of uh, Sharia, of, of a Muslim society as being based or founded on a Sharia has known a very substantial change in history, and that is not acknowledged by most of the people. That, for example, uh, in the early, that, uh, to illustrate the, this, in the very early moments when uh, revelation came and was transmitted to, to the believers, uh, Sharia or the Quranic prescriptions and commandments were understood to be a kind of uh, a limited number of, uh, of regulations that modified 
the existing traditions and the existing regulations in order to align them with the Islamic ethics. But later on, it, and this process took at least two centuries, a number of, of individuals in the Muslim world came to the idea that one, instead of uh, taking just those commandments that were in the scriptures, one could discard all traditions in all societies, discard all regulations, and build a new, totally comprehensive system based on the model of those commandments. So it seems to me that there has been a great change between the early idea of what Sharia is and this, and that people are uh, committing a kind of anachronism when they assign the second vision of Sharia to the early moments of Islam. That they commit, if I can say, a great mistake against the historical development, and that the second idea of Sharia is something that belongs to the history of Muslims, not to Islam as a number of uh, beliefs and creeds and prescriptions. I will stop here, and I hope I have not been too confused about <laughs> what I said. Thank you. No, thank, thank you very much indeed for opening up this amazingly broad and wide spectrum. I now pass on to the other panelists, and perhaps you, Sarah, might go next, please. Thank you. I think I'm uh, the only one in the panel who had the privilege to listen to all uh, previous lectures uh, of uh, Dr. Filali Ansari in the, during this week. Therefore, I, I will try to uh, refer also to some of the many issues that he raised during this week and that uh, each one of which will deserve a discussion and responses of its own. Um, first of all, I, I think I uh, detect some tension between um, the first lecture and this one. In the first lecture, uh, Dr. Filali Ansari uh, challenged very uh, clearly and daringly the common perception of identification of politic politics and religion in Islam. And today's uh, presentation uh, opens up the question of legitimacy of political order within the context of Islam. Now I say tension and I don't say contradiction because I think it's it's pretty obvious that one has to this is the normal tension that one sees between uh, perhaps the best theory and the concessions one, one must make to uh, the best realistically attainable practice in any present state of affairs. Um, as tools to, bri to bridge over these tensions, uh, there were several tools or, or, or uh, mechanisms that were mentioned during this week, and one word that uh, appeared in all lectures is uh, historization. Uh, this is a key term, and um, as uh, a response or continuation to that, I would like to mention, uh, you mentioned Averroes, and I would like to mention uh, his contemporary Maimonides, uh, 
uh, who, in the context of the development of religions, both mostly Judaism, his own religion, but also in particular Islam, Maimonides dwells on the contextualization or historization of the development of religion within a particular historical tank, uh, uh, context. And the term that he suggests for this contextualization is talatuf, uh, uh, which is the way in which he describes uh, God's accommodation or pedagogical accommodation uh, of uh, the ideal to the reality of what people can do at a certain time. So the people of Israel cannot understand a religion without um, a sacrifice, so they are taught to sacrifice, but not to the idols and not human sacrifices. And the same kind of theory he applies also to the Muslim, uh, 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 Muslim rituals of the Hajj. A similar um, historization can be uh, seen less clearly but hinted in Averroes when at the end of his response to Al-Ghazali, the Tahafut, uh, uh, which is usually translated incorrectly but uh, tenaciously as the incoherence of the incoherence, at the end of, of this treatise he says that philosophers have always uh, adhered to the last religion in the course of history, which is why the uh, philosophers in Alexandria uh, converted to Christianity and why uh, philosophers in his days should be Muslim. And uh, in this um, very carefully word worded uh, Statement. I think my, uh, Averroes also opens up for the philosophers and the intellectuals the way to see that religion develops with time. Another mechanism that uh, was mentioned is exegesis. Um, the way we interpret the text uh, so as to... Um, bring out of them uh, what we think would be most uh, appropriate and appropriate for, for our context. Uh, in the last two centuries, there has been an endless debate within Islam of whether or not the gates of uh, legal reasoning, ijtihad, uh, has have been closed, or whether they can be they are open and can be used. And without going into this debate, I would mention again Maimonides, who, in uh, chapter twenty five of the second part of his Guide for the Perplex, speaks about the power of exegesis, the unexhaustible power of exegesis, whenever a text clashes with uh, rationality, uh, for, uh, as exam for example, as in the case of anthropomorphic verses in the Bible that he needs to be interpreted. And his words are, um, the gates of figurative interpretation are not shut in our face or impossible of access for us. Uh, 
there is always the possibility of exegesis that would help the modernists to use the text and, and keep it alive. Um, in the first lecture, uh, uh, Dr. Filali Ansari mentioned uh, the um, philosophical views about the mutakallimun, whom the philosophers saw as apologists, as uh, people who uh, harness uh, truth and science to uh, their religious uh, narrow-mindedness and who forced um, the reality so as to fit their own ideas. This is how, indeed, how the philosophers saw them. But I uh, would like to present uh, an apologia of the Mutakalimun, because uh, I think one has to remember that the Kalam started before the uh, very well-known um, uh, translation movement which fed the uh, philosophers and gave them uh, Greek texts and Greek scientific texts to work with. The Mu'tazilites started before that, the Mutakalimun started before that, and at the beginning of the Kalam in the eighth and ninth centuries, we find the Mutakalimun at the forefront of uh, bringing rationality into religion, bringing science into a religion, and also at the forefront of looking um, to establish contexts, polemical contexts, but also contacts, contacts of uh, curiosity with other religions. Now, with time, uh, the Mutakalimun became indeed what the philosophers saw in them, but in the same way that one wants to uh, or can renew the life of uh, verses, one can also renew the life of movements. And um, it is interesting to see some of uh, the Islamic modernists calling themselves neo-Mu'tazilites. Uh, the name of uh, Nasser Hamid Abu Zaid was mentioned here. He sometimes called himself a neo-Mu'tazilite or a neo-Mutakalim, exactly in his attempt to let the text speak in a rational and modern way so as to be open in, uh, uh, in a modern way to, to the reality of today. And uh, I would like to bring here a short text of a uh, short story about two rather late mutakalimun from the early uh, 13th centuries. One uh, Muslim, Jamal al-Din ibn al-Qifti, who died in 1248, and the other, a Jew, uh, his very good friend, intimate friend, friend, Joseph ibn Yahya ibn Shamun, who died in 1226, and who was Maimonides' favorite uh, disciple, the one for whom Maimonides wrote the guide. And uh, the story appears in Ibn al-Kifti's history of the, uh, of the physicians. And he tells the story about a certain Abd salam Ibn Abd al-Qadir, Ibn Abi Saleh, Ibn Junki, uh, who, because of his involvement in the political affairs of the Nasirids, and due to jealousy, was accused of being um, 
I can say, a muatil, a heretic, uh, uh, grossly speaking, and of following the ideas of the philosophers. And he was put on trial. Uh, the words are waka'at alayhi al-hifzaz, that is to say that the uh, uh, religious uh, hand of, of the state, uh, the one that is responsible to apply the political power to the, com to the command to uh, enjoin Muslims to do the best and to avoid uh, the worst. So he was put on trial and his books were burnt, one by one, in an open square in Baghdad. And uh, the one who orchestrated this, a certain Ubaidallah Taimi al-Bakri, known as Ibn al-Maristaniya, was standing on a pulpit and describing each book and then throwing it into the fire. So this is the background. And the story is that Ibn al-Kifti tells us that the Jewish physician Yusuf from Ceuta recounted to me, saying, I was then in Baghdad as a merchant, so I was present at this happening. He calls it uh, Mahfal. And I heard Ibn al-Maristaniya's talk, and I saw in his hand a book, uh, Ibn Haytham's book of astronomy. And he was indicating the circle describing the celestial sphere and saying, this is the utmost calamity, the fatal blow, the blind misfortune. And when he finished speaking, he tore it up and threw it into the fire. And Joseph writes to Ibn al-Kifti and says, this proved for me his ignorance and, ignorance and his fanaticism, for there is no heresy in astronomy. Rather, this is the way to achieve true belief and to know the power of God, blessed and glorious, in the things he designed and which he did wisely. Uh, there are a few things to mark in this story besides the very um, uh, vivid uh, picture of the auto da fe. Uh, first, the, the Ibn al-Kifti uh, uses the information from his uh, informant, uh, Yusuf, the Jew, as if the two of the, as if there is no religious barrier between them. They are both very religious people, each in his own religion. They are both looking to know the world as part of their religiosity. And they are very good friends. Uh, the other thing to note here is um, that both of them seem to agree that Ibn al-Haytham's astronomy is no heretical book, but they also seem to implicitly agree that had it been a heretical book, it would have been worthy of burning. I mean, they don't seem to ask to question this. And I would like to recall here the distinction that, uh, with which uh, Professor uh, Hilali uh, Ansari began uh, his very illuminating uh, lectures, the one brought by Marshall Hodgson between Islam, Islamdom, and Islamicate. Within the context of Islam, there are all the mechanisms, the ones we mentioned here and others, others that were mentioned yesterday, like 
a possible council, ethical uh, 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 approaches to the text. There are mechanisms with which Muslims within Islam or religious people within any religious tradition can uh, keep their immediate and, and uh, um, modern approach to the text and make the, keep the text uh, vivid for the community and for themselves. But within the context of Islamicate, of Islam, Islamic states, states of which the majority or a large minority are Muslims, one would still hope that there would be a legitimacy to what we call bluntly blasphemy, that one could a state would allow a state which is a state which is made mostly of Muslims and even believing Muslims would keep a place for people who are muattils, who are heretics or who blaspheme without their books being burnt or without their being, uh, their, their having to uh, flee the country so as not to be shortened by a head. Thank you. I was intrigued by some of the parallels with um, the Western European tradition, which has grown out of Christendom. And so although I'm supposed to represent some kind of Christian perspective, most of the perspectives are kind of uh, Christian only in the historical uh, uh, context. But there were two in, in particular that I was uh, really intrigued about. Uh, your early account of legitimacy under despotic uh, rulers uh, because that has some, uh, again, connection with uh, the way in which, um, under the divine right of kings and the despot of kings, then um, people were trying to gain some sense of legitimacy, uh, particularly within uh, a religious context. I'll say a little bit more about that later. Also, uh, most particularly, the way in which uh, legitimacy becomes related to constitutionalism. That has been absolutely quite key, and in that opens a lot of questions. Uh, partly, some of them I'd like to address. It was, in fact, constitutionalism itself which brought to light, and constitutional law brought to light, a paradox which I think we're still actually living with, uh, and that is the paradox of the relationship between legality and uh, legitimacy. And the way in which constitutional law, most particularly in uh, the Weimar Republic, which were the, was the first major expression of this kind of uh, crisis of constitutional law, because it was the first real kind of uh, expression of there being a deliberate process in which a constitutional uh, constitution was being set up, uh, after the end of the Wilhelmine uh, regime. That, although there are, there are um, uh, kind of accounts, for example, of the, the American Constitution and anyone who's seen the film Lincoln, you know, some of the difficulties that Lincoln had in terms of his decisionist powers in the context of a civil war, in the, depart in, in the context then of how legitimate was this, within the within, uh, 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 American Constitution. But it was the Weimar Republic that kind of really kind of highlighted this. 
because of uh, two things, really. What, uh, what, what highlighted it was uh, the state of exception. When can, um, in a constitutional crisis, where the, the Constitution itself might be at risk, when can the President or whoever heads up the Constitution step in, and to what extent is that outside legality altogether in order to establish uh, legitimacy? The other part of that then was in, in fact to do with uh, problems and then that, that related to parliamentarism. And you didn't kind of mention parliamentarism, so I was just wondering about the relationship between po uh, popular sovereignty and parliamentarism. And this position of the head of the state, the constitutional state, with respect to what to do that was actually even outside the law in order to actually safeguard the the, the eventually safeguard the, uh, the, the, the legitimacy. Now, it did have, uh, this, this kind of crisis did have a, a Christian background, if you like, which was the divine right of kings, which had absolute sovereignty, and the way in which, in some ways, the notion of the president or the head of state or the Reichspräsident and the Weimar uh, uh, had this kind of position that was both inside and outside the law because the, the, the absolute divine right of kings was based on a monarch who was uh, the lawgiver uh, and the maker of the law but was beyond the law. And so there was that kind of crisis already in, 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 embryonically between uh, legality and uh, legitimacy. But this kind of came to very much to the fore uh, in the collapse of the nation states and then the rise of uh, democratically constitutional, uh, uh, constitutional nations. And what, what there, um, it seems to me, occurs is fundamental is the division of offices. You divide the legislature from the executive and you maintain the independence of the, uh, the, the leg legislating uh, 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 powers. Uh, but even then, whether in fact that can actually, um, uh, it, as long as they're working together, it's fine. But in fact, uh, the, the fact that you've got someone who can make a decision, like Tony Blair, you know, we go to war, war with Iraq, 78% of the population are saying, not in our name, but in fact he has a decisionist right to make uh, a, 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 an act on behalf of the country in, in that particular way, without, in fact, in terms of popular sovereignty, without the legitimate backing of popular, popular sovereignty uh, 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 around that. So I'd like to ask those questions about that kind of relationship between um, uh, legality and, um, uh, and, and, and legitimacy. And, and particularly because um, what came to the heart of the crisis in the Weimar, and it's come to the heart again in many ways, is a crisis within the nature of, of sovereignty itself, in particular popular sovereignty uh, itself. And I, I, I would like to kind of raise that issue because obviously now, in a sense, we are in, or in several of the countries that um, have constitutions in Europe or ourselves, which have a kind of quasi-constitution, kind of 
um, we're in a kind of secular. There's no, there's no. So, so it's not in the way that in, in in which the law is enshrined in a way that's outside and universal and religiously uh, informed. And in that secular um, state, there has then been uh, a, a, a difficulty arising with respect to religious understandings of a way to live uh, and, and, an, and an order of life. So that what you, you, you're actually getting are debates now about whether secularism is an ideology itself, uh, as in some of the uh, debates that were, uh, have been going on in France, or whether in fact it can simply be operational such that it can actually relate these, uh, uh, these differences which are happening at the, uh, at, at, at the level of uh, different, different forms of uh, uh, popular, well, di different groupings within uh, uh, the state. So I, I wanted to ask about, about that popular so sovereignty issue it, it, and, and how does that relate to parliamentarism? Because what part of the crisis which has happened, and, it, it, and, and in some ways that crisis is labelled by words like post-democracy, for instance, in in in, in Italy, uh, most most specific, specifically, though it's been used in this country as well, where in fact um, what what then constitutes this popular sovereignty when you've actually got a government who is backing away from its state responsibilities and is only interested in the administration of power and getting into office. And therefore, in fact, popular sovereignty is something which is manufactured through major advertising campaigns or, or lobby groups or whatever. But it, but it, it is not something which just spontaneously uh, arises. And I'm asking that also, and asking about that with respect to constitutional law, in part because um, in uh, December of last year, just before the Egyptian constitution came into effect and was being voted on, I was in India as part of a group who were asked to look at the state of exception within Mubarak's constitution and look at it within what was still the very draft and translated, I mean, I don't read Arabic, constitution. And it seemed that there were kind of close parallels in terms of what the government could actually do if, in fact, the constitution came itself under the possibility of crisis. What became really interesting, though, was uh, the, the focus upon parliamentarism uh, and how important that was. The, the 20, I think it was 25 amendments that would come through to the Constitution, that would actually come through uh, the, 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 that, that form of parliamentarism, and the parliamentary, um, uh, the, the makeup of parliament would be, from what I remember, 50% um, from farmers and peasants within... But there was no, from what we, we were given, there was no sense of, well, who's choosing these farmers and peasants? And to what extent do they have representative power in terms of being in parliament that therefore would constitute some notion of a popular sovereignty? And then within that, the notion of popular sovereignty, if you're elected and you're representative, how representative is the representative when they actually get into the parliament, parliament itself? So... so Questions really about the relationship with, between legality and legitimacy, which I don't think are resolved issues, um, uh, and particularly they may be resolved. They may seem as though they can work together in um, a, a, a state of peace, if you like, but in a state of crisis. And you know, the Arab Spring is still not resolved. I mean, a lot of these countries are still in states of 
of, of, of crisis, then what happens between that? Where does that paradox actually emerge? And then questions concerning the, the nature of, of how popular sovereignty actually does get um, uh, related to both parliamentarism and what 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 the, what did it mean? I mean, how do you know it's popular? I mean, where, from whence does this arise as, as a notion of sovereignty at all? I'll, I'll leave it there. Well, many thanks, um, Dr. Winkler. Thank you very much for this um, opportunity. Um, on the train earlier today, I spent a couple of happy hours dipping into uh, a very new book, which is Wa'il Halak's book, The Impossible State. And by the time I reached uh, Oxford, I was about halfway through the second chapter, but already I'm recommending it to people. And I did find that it primed my mind wonderfully for uh, a deeper understanding of what uh, Professor Filali Ansari is saying. The essential uh, thesis of this book, and for those of you who don't know, Wa'il Halak is... Uh, a citizen of the world, somebody who straddles the two allegedly clashing civilizations of East and West. He's a Palestinian Christian who uh, teaches Sharia at Columbia, not far from the site of the World Trade Center, and hence has a kind of Janus-like capacity to look uh, in both directions simultaneously. And the thesis of this book uh, is essentially, for reasons to do with the crisis of legitimacy, that the Western state is impossible but the Islamic State, whose advocates he, although not a Muslim, uh, are presenting uh, a very credible alternative to, is not possible either. So it's about a dual crisis of legitimacy, and he is recent enough to be able to present this as uh, a rather doom-laden uh, prediction for the outcome of the current so-called Arab Spring. Essentially, the thesis is that uh, the Western model of the state lacks legitimacy insofar as its guiding premises from the time of Weimar and certainly from the rather brave uh, assurances about human nature ventured upon at the time of the Lumière have been uh, philosophically and empirically largely discredited. He looks, for instance, at the question of human subjectivity the Lumière, the Enlightenment, presumed that religion and its ideas of legitimacy could be swept away. After all, it had generated such recent horrors as the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre, and reason henceforth would arbitrate between good and evil and would guide the councils of uh, a republican state. However, our current philosophical consensus increasingly is moving towards a very drastic uh, deconstruction shall we say, of the very notion of the integrity of human selfhood, of a continuing narrative of a human ghost within the machine, uh, a philosophical view, whether or not one labels it with a rather broad brush category of postmodernism, which is increasingly reinforced by the findings of the neuroscientists, whose rather deterministic conclusions about what we really are and what we do when we take uh, decisions seem to move us rather back, almost in the direction of an almost Asherite conception of, uh, of, of, of an absence of free will. So there is this crisis of legitimacy. The Enlightenment narrative is not working, and he deploys in quite an inventive way 
uh, Islamist texts to demonstrate that in fact they have spotted this, although not always with the sophistication uh, that we associate with Western critics of, of the Western model of the Enlightenment state, and he has in mind particularly people like Charles Taylor and Alistair McIntyre, but nonetheless he has a sneaking suspicion for their project. Uh, they think that the West will lead us to an apocalypse the environmental crisis being just one example of how reason cannot lead us in the direction of a balanced and orderly civil uh, world. But the Islamists, he also contends, are wrong because they are also laboring under the uh, sign of a false claim to legitimacy. He dismisses entirely uh, their claims to be representing a repristinated version of the alleged unanimous Islam of the Prophet and the first sainted generations, the Salaf, something which, as somebody who has spent a lifetime in the study of Islamic legal texts, he is uh, well equipped to do. They represent, for him, just another way of being modern. Uh, particularly totalitarian way, their reaction against the crisis of modernity simply being another of its epicycles. So where does this leave us if, for instance, the calamity in Syria at the moment represents just another instance of modernity's squabbles with itself, with a recognisably classical uh, pre-modern Sharia order forgotten and nowhere in sight on anybody's political agenda, uh, what hope is there? Well, I haven't got to the end of the book yet, so I'm afraid I can't tell you whether um, we should expect a happy ending. But it does seem to me that he has put his finger on the fact that uh, uh, we are existing in uh, an age of the crisis of epistemologies, which leads to uh, a widespread interrogation of traditional ideas of legitimacy. How can one be legitimate and authentic in the context of an Islamic world that cannot turn the clock back? and reclaim the glories of the Abbasid age or even the crises of the age of Muawiyah and those other nostalgic epochs um, to, uh, against which Professor Filali Ansari was rightly warning us against um, uh, harking back to. But if the modern option seems to be in crisis within itself uh, and also divorced from its own philosophical roots in the Enlightenment, uh, where should we be moving? Well, let me just um, rewind a little bit to um, one of uh, Professor Filali Ansari's uh, earlier uh, reflections, which I think were also um, well taken, which is uh, the issue of apologetics. Ultimately, ideas of political, social, cultural legitimacy uh, in the context of a religiously based and driven and legitimated civilization such as Islam are theological and, if you like, apologetic in their roots. That is what makes them Islamic rather than secular Christian uh, or something else. The origins of the Islamic story begin with a, a, a clash of legitimacies. Um, the time of Muawiyah to which he referred was the time in which the Kharijites held the political legitimacy uh, and any just claim to religious leadership should be vested in the most pious of the community. This was the position of the Kharijites. And to this day, and perhaps particularly in this day, in the shape of Al-Qaeda and allied Salafist uh, or Wahhabi formations, the same idea of a Cromwellian republic of the righteous, with the most pious being the one with the greatest legitimacy to religious and political authority, um, is a very widely followed, perhaps increasingly widely followed, option. But at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you find the Shia, 
the uh, paladins of Ali, who, of course, did not in that early period, whatever their subsequent mythologizing might have claimed, had anything like the elaborate ideas of the imam's infallibility, um, which were attributed to him by subsequent generations of, of theorists. But nonetheless, their idea of legitimacy, uh, influential one, still prevalent, present on the streets in Damascus at this moment, Hezbollah are there as I speak, was assured of the fact that it should be the prophet's kin who represent legitimacy in an Islamic culture. And the people of the Sunnah, again, although they similarly invented themselves and repristinated themselves, uh, having prevailed after centuries of difficult discord with these two extremes, as the mainstream uh, saw them, uh, emerged as a kind of middle ground. And this, it seems to me, is characteristic of uh, the way in which Islam operates in history. It is Hegelian, it is dialectical, some kind of synthesis emerges and it's not a single point, a single ideology, but a wide variety of points of view. Uh, the Sunni for legal schools themselves internally significantly divided, the Ashari, the Maturidi and the Hanbali doctrines representing not just details of belief about God and his angels and what to expect in the afterlife, but also fundamental differences about the way in which one should read scripture and the relevance of, of reason. Uh, Sunni Islam, Orthodox Islam, I don't accept that term, but uh, what else are we to say, uh, is a broad church uh, and as such has different views of legitimacy. And I see that as something positive rather than something um, that should lead to alarm, whether or not the neo-Mu'tazilite option, to which Professor Filali Ansari uh, uh, adverted, is necessarily the way in which uh, the role of reason should be salvaged in the context of a modernity that is, as I mentioned, self-experiencing qualms about the autonom autonomous capacity of reason to discern uh, the good life is another question. I would suspect that instead, if we're looking at apologetics and uh, thinking about Ibn Rushd and his uh, uh, rather polarized view of uh, the, the life of the mind and uh, the reception of revelation, uh, that we would do well to do something that I don't often do, but in this case I think is, is appropriate, which is to refer to a recent turn in Orientalist discourse, which until very recently, in some quarters to this day, assumed that what was of value in classical Islamic civilization was that which had a teleology that ended in the West. And Averroes was a classic example of that because he was a key influence on Aquinas through his various, sometimes rather strange, um, but very passionate, you might say, and very faithful commentaries on, on Aristotle. But instead of looking at it in those terms, Eurocentric terms, and there are some in the Islamic world who also for reasons of an inferiority complex, like also to valorize that which has led to the wonders of modernity. Instead, we start to look, if we start to look at later Islamic theology, alleged apologetics, through the lens of somebody like Rob Wisnowski at McGill, who has almost but not quite now single-handedly uh, recalibrated our assumptions about the role of reason in Islamic civilization and demonstrated that the Ghazalian turn uh, which allegedly put an end to, according to the traditional Orientalist uh, narrative of Averroes on the side of reason and philosophy, Al-Ghazali on the side of blind imitation of ancient text and some numinous, vague, incommunicable mysticism, that instead of that polarity, 
uh, we have a story in which Ghazali turns out to be the one who most systematically philosophizes Islamic apologetics. This is Wisnowski's insight, but various studies on Ghazali by other authors have also brought this to light. It's too early to say whether this will prevail in the field because it does represent a new way in which uh, Westerners and many Muslims actually view their tradition. But certainly it's the case that we are starting to look more seriously than, than we did at apologetics in Islamic civilization in the post-Ghazalian and indeed the post-Razi age. We're starting to look for the first time, I think, seriously at people like Nasafi, Teftazani, Giorgiani, and the subsequent reception of those great late figures who, because they were not known to the Latins or to anybody else, were simply under the radar for most uh, traditional Orientalism. So I think that we need to get away from the idea that there is a tension or a polemic between reason leading up to the Lumière, as if there was some kind of natural overlap between Averroes's rather specialised Aristotelian conception of human selfhood and, and, and reason on the one hand, simply because they're both interested in logic doesn't mean that they understand the same thing by the word uh, reason. And on the other hand, an alleged uh, obscurantism, which is pessimistic about the capacity of reason to discern God's truths and simply wishes uh, uh, like Ibn Taymiyyah and his Hanbalite followers, uh, slavishly to follow the plain sense of the text. I think it's much more interesting, and I do hope in a context like this, where um, Muslim thinkers and Western thinkers and experts on kalam and falsafa, various types can come together, there can be a realisation of the way in which uh, Islamic studies in the West can, in a very helpful way, flow into and uh, re-energize the discussions that now seem to have reached a deadlock, I think, in uh, many of the Islamic countries, with the result uh, that we see the, the fighting on the streets in Damascus and, and elsewhere. So those are a few uh, thoughts. I'd just like to end with uh, the, the fact that it's not frequently noted in Western or sometimes... Um, uh, Muslim nationalist accounts of the current reality in the Islamic world, which is that what we are seeing is not so much a crisis of Islamic ideas of legitimacy and the method by which they hope to secure a good society, but actually a crisis in secularity. The regimes in the post-colonial period have all more or less functionally emulated Western models whether they've been ultimately laying claims to ideas of legitimacy through monarchy of various kinds or various military condottieri of the kind that ruled Egypt and that uh, continue to rule at least parts of Syria. Essentially, Western models that failed ethically, failed to deal with poverty, failed to deal with economic backwardness, failed in the dare I say it, confrontation as they understand it with uh, Israel, failed in all of those things in which they claimed uh, legitimacy. And it is the failure of secularity which represents the great crisis of the contemporary Arab-Islamic world, not the, crisis, not the failure of Islamic notions. However, I'm uh, convinced that uh, Halak has a very strong argument when he says that given the ineluctable reality of a globalized world and a patchwork of nation states with their unavoidable assumptions the corporatist assumptions of the Westphalian model that a Sharia state under contemporary conditions is actually impossible. It is indeed the impossible state. So we're all looking for a form of legitimacy. Um, we are all, I think, in it together. Uh, and I'm enormously grateful to not just Professor Villali, I'm sorry, but to all of these uh, 
presentations which have shed light on what surely is one of the great um, issues of the age. Thank you very much indeed for that. And now Professor Filali and Sari has the opportunity to answer all the questions that have been raised before I then um, uh, open it up and, uh, and give um, you all the opportunity to ask him or indeed other panellists even more questions. I would say that this is by excellence the impossible task no? <laughs> so, because it is sure that the openings brought by the, the, the three colleagues are so important, so substantial and point towards directions that all are worthy of serious work, serious consideration, and serious response. I would just maybe take this time to restate what uh, my ambition was, and what uh, well, maybe to show where I, my ambition is not going uh, as far as my colleagues may have thought of. What I wanted to, 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 to stress is maybe uh, the moods or the prevailing, it is sure, for example, what, uh, uh, the, the, what uh, Dr. Winter was uh, uh, highlighting, for, that at some point, ideas of legitimacy between the extremes of the Shia and the Kharijite were, were there and had their impact, had their followers and so on. And uh, one could not just dis dismiss them uh, from the landscape that they were. Uh, they, they, they had their, their share and they maybe have contributed by taking extreme positions to pushing or to creating a middle ground that was... Uh, but I would say I was more interested from the outset uh, in trying to identify that middle ground and especially trying to uh, see how uh, the, the ideas within well, uh, the, it's like an approach of a statistician. The mean, or the uh, the, the, the the most the the, uh, the the attitudes that prevailed at some point in uh, in in the history of Muslims, and especially to show that there was variation in time, that there and that there were layers of approaches that came one upon the other and that we happen to find them. And in this, I am really grateful to what has been, uh, to, to the colleagues for what they have brought. Uh, they show that it is the case, that we are dealing with layers, with uh, different approaches. But my interest, my aim was to face, and when I said also apologetics, I am thinking of contemporary apologetics. Well, what happened uh, well, uh, in the Kalam, in the history of uh, Islamic theology in Kalam, it is clear that there was, uh, and uh, maybe I stressed it in the, the very first lecture, there was some sophistication in the thinking that there was, if I can say rationality was not uh, j just a, a, an empty slogan, that there was, uh, there were attempts and uh, quite uh, technically uh, respectable, if I can say, can you use such an expert? <laughs> Attempts to, to bring reason and to see how within the faith one could be rational. And uh, the Mu'tazila have earned greater respect for some of their approaches. Others which who have been mentioned have too been uh, contributing to this. So my, if I can say my subject is, or my ambition was much more modest, was to look at how in within society, within the, if I can say in the middle of these discussions, 
what was the main idea that seems, seemed to have prevailed and that seems to have, at the end of uh, at some moments, to have shaped, to end by shaping the prevailing attitude at those moments. So I would uh, maybe uh, add one or two uh, specific points, one of them being about the, the, what was mentioned as a tension if I, by, uh, by um, Dr. Strumza, uh, between what I said initially and uh, I would say that uh, it, uh, for me, if I can go back to this, uh, uh, the opening of the, this discussion, what I wanted to, to stress were the opinions of a number of the views or the, uh, uh, maybe this is the remarks made by a number of contemporary thinkers, which show that uh, the uh, build-up of or the transformation of the original community into uh, polities, which we, uh, and their transformation uh, into empires was something that came later in the history of Muslims. And that today, when I'm talking about legitimacy, I am already going to these later periods. That I, that uh, to say, to try to say it uh, as simply as possible, the idea is that there is, for these the contemporary thinkers like Ali Abdarrahman, <coughs> there is no political obligation in the scriptures that Muslims accept, and that it is Muslims who later, uh, what was there, if I can say, in the early uh, message, and as it has been understood was a double challenge, to take the words from Fadlur Rahman, was a double challenge. One, for, for Muslims, it, it, they were requested to live with the idea of the omnipresence of God, of the closeness of, of God, of the fact that all their acts were under the sight of God. But that was not only the only challenge. They had also to live or to, uh, to, to, to strive to create around them uh, amongst them and around them, a moral community, a community that abides by ethical principles and by the commandments of the faith. So uh, at that moment, there is a nuance here. There is no question of, of uh, politics, of creating a polity, an empire, or, or transforming the community into a political entity. This is something that came later, and it came after some if I can say, searching after some discussions, debates, and so on. And when they came to this, when Muslims came to, uh, to, to when they went for the idea of uh, making of their community a political entity, then they faced, they faced the challenge, challenge of defining what legitimacy could be. And then they, they, they well, and I stressed, well, I, I would like to stress it again, it was when they lost this early caliphate, this early system, uh, that they realized that uh, there was there something that they felt as legitimate. There was a sense of the tragic, there was a sense of loss, and then it's an impression, what I am trying to describe here is a kind of uh, attitude or impression that prevailed in many Muslim contexts, and that is still with us in a way. And that it is after that that uh, this idea of uh, legitimacy had to be abandoned. And here I come to the very uh, interesting distinction that uh, 
you made between legitimacy and legality, the, 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 the idea, the second idea of legitimacy is much closer, but not, there is a family resemblance, I would say, much closer to, to, to something like the, 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 the system that is seen as being legal, mm. well, some kind of rule of law, and so on, but not fully legitimate. We accept any despot as he comes and when he prevails, but just we, if I can say, the idea for Muslims was to build a comprehensive system of regulations from the models of those Quranic, Quranic prescriptions in order to protect society from despotism, in order maybe to confine the despot mm -hmm. in, in clear limits, not to check on despots. This is where maybe the history of Muslims went into a di opposed direction. The kings in, in, in Christendom had a divine right. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out, their divine right led to, uh, to a number of debates and discussions mm -hmm. and so on, wars. which opened on wars and which opened the gates for the transformation that led to parliamentarism and so on. Mm -hmm. In the Muslim, Muslim context, maybe in the history of the middle period, the, the, the things went in another direction. It was rather to deny any divine right to the, mm -hmm. to the king, rather to confine him to very strict, into, into very strict limits of policing, of defense, if I, if I defense against external enemies, of making of him a kind of administration, administrator, denying, if I can say, that he would be a real policy, or that there would be something like politics as we see it nowadays. Mm -hmm. So here, this is something that is maybe very useful, but I'm still, I thought that it could be seen or presented as a form as a, of uh, an imagined le legitimacy, mm -hmm. reduced, but some kind of legitimacy, except especially that it has been captured by a number of thinkers around the Muslim world, but also of observers from the outside of the Muslim world, as being maybe the paradigm of the legitimate Islamic order. So this is something that, that, that happened uh, in that way. But in fact, the distinction between legality and, uh, and uh, legitimacy is something important to, 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 to stress. Well, uh, again, I would say that my, my object is uh, quite, quite limited and the openings that are offered here, I will have to, to, to work on them. This opens, this gives me food for thought, if I can say, for the future reflection on the subject. I would say, to, 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 to end my, my reaction, that the apologetics I am thinking of is prevailing in contemporary discourses around us. If we see the lit literature that is produced around us, what is uh, written, what is how the way things are said on satellite television, the way Islam is presented in many fora, it is apologetic, not in the, the good sense of the term, but rather uh, in an ideological sense. It is ideology. This is what seems to me to be a great challenge to us nowadays, and the need to go back to history, to historicizing, as I suggested, a number of, of things in the history of Muslims would be quite helpful, not only for those who 
uh, out of their belief, would like to go back to the core, to the original message, and to discard the, what history came to add around it, but also to those who are rather from coming from a secularist or secular perspective, who would like to understand what is happening and to really to react it, to react to what is happening in intelligent ways and not being not being caught into the trap of ideological and apologetic contemporary discourses. Mm -hmm.